Hello, everybody, what and welcome up? back to a This Would Know, and I mean this one on my chest, because oh. I got a This Would Know shirt you on. Know, ooh, Monty, that God. t-shirt is making me thirsty. Wow. I might need to take a sip. Oh my goodness, Excuse what me. is that? Where's my... <laughs> I, <laughs> I have no would to know. <laughs> wow. Man, if, if if I faced that problem, I think I would go to thiswouldknow.com slash shop. Shop? Shop. Yep. <laughs> I, did, I made the website, and I still don't know what that is. It's fine. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of This Wooden O. My name is Daniel. And I'm Monty. And today on This Wooden O, we are featuring for the first time speaking, but not the first time on This Wooden O, because you hear her music every Every week. Every single week. If you've ever gone to see a Rude Groom show, she has pretty much composed all of the original music in all of our productions. It's fair to say that she is the voice of Rude Grooms and the sound behind This Wooden O. Please welcome Kara Arena. Oh, thank you guys. You're too good for me. You're too good for us. Right? (laughs) Let's, Let's be a thousand percent real about it. You are a musician as well as a writer, a composer, and then an actor. For you, which one came first? I think I started singing first, and then I found theater, and then that was my love. Um, But I only started writing very recently. How Um, long ago? In college, I started writing. I did this devised musical called Coolsville, sort of like a movement piece to the music of Ricky Lee Jones. And hearing this woman's sound made me think that I could write for the first time. She, like, just doesn't give a f- Oh, vengeance! <laughs> she, like, I can't even put her in a genre. She really is just, like, a mystical woman. In the show, we all had to learn how to play an instrument, and I learned how to play this four-string dulcimer. Nothing's more fun than, like, learning how to play an instrument for a show. Mm-hmm. I think it was just a great introduction to the instrument because you are looking at it as yourself but also like in the lens of the show and the character and gives you like a little extra motivation because nothing's harder than like practicing an instrument as a human being how many times have you had to learn how to play an instrument for a show and then how many instruments do you currently play because i don't think i even know the answer to that question sometimes no i (laughs) i think i only play two Really, I only play guitar. Like, (laughs) guitar is my friend. And I learned to play that um, just because I wanted to write music. But then I've played it in a couple of shows since. And I can touch a piano. (laughs) But, you know, usually I'm just expected to play guitar. These days now, like, I... I think I bring my guitar into half the auditions I go into. Really? Um, people always want to hear, you know, it's just being incorporated into so many new shows that, like, it's just never a bad thing. And I feel like yeah. people are always like, I don't even know if I want actor musicians, but if you play and I like it, maybe I'll just, maybe we'll make that happen. Right. You know, it's it's always yeah. up in the air, um, which I think is a beautiful thing. I mean, it's a big deal for us. For those of you who aren't familiar with our work for our big summer common series shows, we do three covers of pop songs before each performance to kind of like announce that there's a show happening in the park. So in addition to the music that's in the show, there's also this like kind of communal, like, and it kind of serves as like a warm up together. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and you start, you create that non fourth wall engagement with the audience before the play begins. I want to come back to the idea of, of what it is to learn an instrument for a show. Cause I had a very similar experience to what you described oh, really? where I had always loved playing guitar, but I'd always been like 
too terrified to get up and actually play a show. Hmm. But then uh, at the Globe for 12th night, they had basically the exact same structure that we have for the Common series. So you started the show with the cast out there playing whatever instruments they had, and and they knew I could play guitar. So we, you know, we all got together and did these covers, and it was like, oh my god, this is awesome. And the because I was so comfortable in a theater environment, it took the pressure off of what had always been a problem in other places. Sure. Um, and then we all had to learn the uke and line dancing for our jig because they wanted us all playing uke together and doing a wow. giant line dance as the jig at the end of the show. And it was like because a we had to deliver on a date. And B, we had been building trust in so many ways. And C, there was like, we're in a room to do this thing. It was so much easier than any other time I'd tried to learn piano or guitar or whatever. Really? Yeah. I um, I think like as an actor first, it's so much easier to look at things from someone else's perspective. Mm. And then when it's really you, it's scary. Mm. <laughs> it's so scary. And like I have fear a, a it's not a huge fear, but of public speaking, like that's hard for me to speak as myself, but it's easy for me to be someone else. So I feel like learning an instrument is like in, in the context of a character, you are creating your musical persona. Sure. And it's not you. Yeah. Does your fear of public speaking come into play when you're playing your own music? I think it's a little different because, well... The first time I played, I was my my own music. I was paralyzed. I just, I mean, it the sounds came out, but like, and the songs came out. Sure. And I, when was that? When was the first time that you played your own material in front of an audience? I think I must have been a junior in college, so I must have been like twenty one, and I hadn't totally like figured out what my sound was mixed with what you know I was trying to say to people and how I was trying to say it. Mm. And since then. I've definitely created more of a songwriting persona. I think I have grounded myself in in who I am and 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 what I like to write about. So now it's not quite as petrifying and I I can get up in front of people and be like I you know, I'm pretty sure that you know, I'm, <laughs> we're all on the same page here like I'm the <laughs> songwriter, you're the audience and it's going to be okay. You said that you have developed more of a songwriting persona. Mm -hmm. How much daylight is there between you, Kara Arena, the person, and then Kara Arena, the performer? So they're the same, but the performance persona has to carry the material, and Kara has to carry both of them. The performance persona is what is going to keep people's attention and how you are going to reach people. And so I think... The person in the spotlight has to do that with the utmost grace. But the real life you, you know, is kind of stuck with, you know, the weight of that and like the that energy that it takes to do that. Mm -hmm. And then the things in life that come from that and make that kind of hard, you know, I think that is what the artist herself is left with. Do you find there, it difficult to maintain balance between the two? Yes. I think that's so hard. What's the most you? challenging part about it for you? Balancing work and life in the way that like, <laughs> because as actors, like, uh, it's so hard not to take things personally and to like not become the judgment in a way. <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Like you experience judgment, but it's so hard not to, um, let, let that permeate even when you're playing a character yeah right like yes and like not letting 
the reality of that character be your 24-7. Right. Have you ever had that happen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love playing villains. I've always found villains more interesting, just as an audience member from Vader onward. But there's also a, there's a, a real sense to me of like, oh, finding that point where they break with being a good person and then becoming someone who does atrocities and like seeing how close you can bring that to yourself and how close you can bring that to your audience. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, oftentimes when I feel like I've found a psychologically sound entry point into one of those characters and take the audience on that journey, and then someone's like, ah, that's... Oh, vengeance! Wounds! Piece of shit. Oh, vengeance! Uh, everybody hates him. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, yes, yes, of course. So in, on one sense, thank you. But on the second, like, oh, but I thought... Did you I see? I thought we'd gone here together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I take think... it really, really personally. Like, sure. What about you, Daniel? Yeah, I, uh, I completely agree. I always have a more interesting experience playing villains. I think they're, I think they're just more fun. I find them to be interesting, but the thing that I appreciate most about villains in a lot of the work that I've done is they are the characters throughout the play with a real sense of conviction. They have a real, That's such a good point. they have a real point of view. And I find that in a lot of work, your protagonist is their main agenda is to try and, is just to try and stop a thing from happening. It's it's not this. Right, they're reactive rather the, than driven. But the villains, the villains that I play or that I have the most fun with, they're the ones with real vision. Like it's like I have a thing that I'm driving toward and I am trying to create. And I think the interesting challenge for me is in terms of the relationship that you referenced with the audience members, it's like, I know that you're gonna look at me as like the bad guy, but how do I get you on my side? Right. How do right. I, like, how do I do this in such a way that I can take this character's side and then also convince you that, like, actually, no, this is, this is what we have to do. And what about you, Kara? Is it mostly in the, in the audition room or have you had roles where you've had that experience too? I like playing the villain because it's a, it looks a little bit twisted in my body. Like, you meet hmm. me and you're like, oh, like I always, people always assume that I'm very sweet. So getting to play roles like that is a little fun because walking on the stage, you experience one thing oh, yeah. and then you can totally transform and shock <laughs> people, yeah. which is fun. Is that something that you'd be interested in doing more of or are you satisfied with the roles that you're normally playing right now? Hmm. I feel pretty satisfied, I think. I like I'm open to both because mm -hmm. both are the same in the way in in a way. Like whatever it is that is my job, it is my job to like crawl <laughs> inside that person and tell their story. For all the reasons we just mentioned, villains frankly are easier to a large extent cuz that complexity is built into the arc of their character. But when you have those more vanilla characters. Have you found a way of spicing them up or yes, like connecting with them? that is necessary, I feel. Just because of the way that women have been appearing on stage up until very recently. Mm -hmm. I think like now's our time to just like let it rip. And like there's no reason why Juliet needs to be <laughs> anything but like the vivid human being that she is. Absolutely. Yeah. Where do you start? 
in the character development process when you're looking for that complexity? I start with myself always, understanding like how someone would cause me pain or how I could hate someone is a good jumping off point. And then as you begin to learn more about the character, I think then you start to go off on a different path that is really not like you at all. What is it that helps you find your way through that new path? The more that like I dive into the meaning, the more new things come up. And then the new things, a way I've never said something before, like a feeling I've never had, I think that's it. And then you kind of make the path from there. Is there is there any role you've played so far that that particular facet of it, like rather than the acting of scenes or the music was like, like is particularly vivid to you? I played Ilsa recently in Spring Awakening. I really loved getting to know her and making her very different from me. I never thought that I would play a character like Ilsa. The character Venla is much more of an ingenue. But then I actually realized that a lot of her lives in me. She just is wild. I had a really kind of amazing time getting to know her through my instrument and because together we were kind of like a rock star. Um, and so I, I got to infuse my songwriting essence into this character. It was kind of like a beautiful combination of it all. I have always found your music to be somewhat ethereal. It like it can vacillate between ethereal or in the case of the changeling, just like flat out haunting. How long did it take you to develop that kind of style of songwriting for yourself? I really value artists like Ricky Lee Jones and Joni Mitchell and these like women who have like this like higher, they, it's almost like they're goddesses. Like uh, there's like a higher power to them. But I also really love indie music like Sufjan Stevens and Arcade Fire. Um, and then I listened to the Beatles my whole life. And so when I was like taking my first cracks at writing, I wrote something and it sounded like it came from Abbey Road. Like it sounded like something, like it was too beatle So It's I, not possible to be too beatle <laughs> That's true, that's true. <laughs> it's all good. But yeah, it was kind of like trial and error. It was like, you know, trying something and it's like, oh, okay, that's really very reminiscent of Sufjan Stevens. And so then after like trial and error, you find this something in the middle that's a little bit of all of them, but then it's you. And that's so interesting to me because that, that directly mirrors how you just described developing a character. Yeah. Did right? I like, oh, really? Find, find, well, you said finding <laughs> yourself and then like the paths start to branch and you find yourself in this other context. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, that's cool. So it seems to be working then. That's, <laughs> right? it's, a good, it's across the board method. This right? is how you do it, folks. <laughs> but so then the next, the next step of that, like for when you are writing for a show, how does your songwriting change? Oh, well, that's a great question because I still have so many uh, more questions than answers about writing for a show. Because I think that is the true skill. You know, I think anyone can write for themselves their own voice because you know your own voice. Um, but like meeting another human and then writing for them, I think is a, is a beautiful thing. With the way that I've been writing for, for Rude Grooms, we usually have like a a vibe that we're going for. We've yeah. talked about like maybe it's a sentence. And so then I'll like lay down one track, one vocal track and like a little bit of guitar for that vibe. And that I guess is just kind of intuitive from me. If I were to sing in the show, this is what I would sing. 
And then from there, I have that like basic melody. And then I'll actually look at the script and be like, okay, now who do we need to sing? Who is singing? And then I will take the melody and move it around from there to make it fit what what we would need. And then sometimes I'll just start adding oohs and oohs and ahs all over the <laughs> oh, <vengeance>! place. <laughs> your oohs and your ahs are my favorites. Right? Uh, an- another question on that particular facet. In the changeling, we started talking about maybe having instruments and then there was an idea of maybe you were you originally wrote the music recorded and very complex and and it was absolutely gorgeous. And then when we decided to shift and just have it were pure, purely vocals, but all all vocals done by the acting company. Like in a day, you took those and like slightly reconfigured them and made them easy enough for the company to learn in like a two hour rehearsal and uh, make audiences go absolutely nuts for them. So what was oh. that like for you? After we talked and I was like, oh, because for some reason in my own brain, I think I got carried away with the oohs and the ahs like I, like I often do. Hard disagree. Um, <laughs> And I was like, yeah, this will sound great. I added, I think, alien noises to one of the tracks. You did. Alien. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. And it's so, like, who would have thought that the changeling is actually a sci-fi play? But it is. Alien noises. So I clearly (laughs) thought that it was going to be a recording. Um, But I would have liked to have met the actor that, like, was perfect for that role. (laughs) The cast is the alien. Um, You're looking right. I was going to say that... Very much felt like a De Flores For sure. descriptor. Yeah. Did you see my pus expelling face? That was rough. That was that was really. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful, but it was rough. <laughs> yeah, I think I think what I did was I I went back to the track and I thought about myself as a singer, like what I could learn in that time. So I think I landed on like three or four tracks per song, which were easy little vocalizations to overlap. And I I do think that keeping things simpler is better. And what was great about it too, was you wrote stuff that was so malleable in performance that we could literally like, based on how this weird movement piece is going tonight, we can shift the timing to make it work together. I couldn't imagine the complexity of creating music that was truly malleable in the moment. Well, I think that's something really cool about our company that it allows for that kind of collaboration. That makes me think of a moment in Romeo and Juliet, specifically the curtain call song you wrote. During the curtain call, it's it's kind of melancholy. It's not quite a dirge, but it's a little somber. It's almost like a cautionary tale. Right. And then after all the bows happened, one of the things that just started naturally occurring in the run of the show was Monty, you would start playing it on the ukulele double time. <laughs> and then Laura jumped in with the violin in such a light, upbeat way. I was like, I feel like I'm listening to this in the bar and like Monty and Laura just like rocking out on a ukulele and a fiddle. Yeah. Um, and by the end of the show, there was this lovely little button that uh that laura put in where she after all the audience had stopped applauding she would take the last phrase of the song and put it in on the violin as like this little upbeat button at the very at the very end and it was just it became such a lovely note to end the show on which you never get with romeo and juliet which you don't get with romeo (laughs) and juliet i i think the way the actual play ends is uplifting in a way Mm -hmm. there's this whole like no actually those moments those those 
comments about raising those statues of these children. That's actually them still trying to one-up each other because they're actually just taking it to an even darker place now because nothing has changed and their lives were meaningless. That's what Romeo and Juliet's supposed to be about. And one of the things that we also discovered in the run of the show is that Romeo and Juliet as a play is hilarious. It's so funny. It is so funny. I mean, you can't cry over someone unless you laugh with them first. Right. I feel like th- I feel like that's what makes the play, for me personally, it's still the only play of Shakespeare that I can see a bad production of and I will still cry. There's on some level, the clockwork of that thing just does things to you mm-hmm. in a way that, I mean, may- maybe no other play I've ever seen, but I don't know. I don't, some people like really hate that play and I just don't get it. I love how light it is. I love the innocence in the beginning and there is like such light in young people Mm. and like Juliet I think is just like a marvelous character. She's so intelligent. One of the things that I I love about that character so much, she's 13 years old Mm. and still has such a strong sense of who she is. It kind of says like the kids got this, like they actually had it right. I feel like it's so commonly said at this point that it's a cliche, but like she's so much more interesting and so much more capable than Romeo is. Oh, like he's because like I feel like from the moment Juliet walks into that scene with her mom and the nurse, her first appearance in the play, and takes control of the situation while basically only uttering 12 words in that scene. There's something that's so incredibly mature and powerful about her that's established right off the bat. Something you uh something you mentioned earlier when uh you're talking about writing for a show, you said that you find that simpler is better, which I think Mm. lends itself to the things that you've given us being more malleable and able to be configured like that. But as someone who is creating a lot of this work, do you have difficulty just letting something lie? Like when you know it's finished? I think because writing, sometimes you get everything out there and it is messy and it's not the simple thing you want. But you ha- wrote it all down and <laughs> you have the melody and whatever. And then the work after that is editing it and editing it until you have the simple thing. And so I think I only have truly like, like not even a full album of songs that are, I think, finished. Like hmm. I have like books of things that you know, I've played for people before and they felt good, but like, I know there's more to be done and more tweaking, but I, I, I think I'm specifically talking about the words here because the melody usually happens in a timely fashion. Hmm. Like, you know, it's not, it doesn't take forever, but then once you have the melody and all your lyrics, I think at that point, that's when you keep just working on it. How do you know when a thing is done? When the song has its own life, you know you can't touch it anymore. When you play it for people and it's reached enough people and it's gotten to that simple point where like it's affected people, I think it's no longer in your hands. And now it's also their song and the song is a thing itself. And like now you shouldn't touch it too much because you're going to Get your hands dirty. In performance, do you still play around with it or do you let it really set like that? Or is that just for the like recorded version that you then riff off of? I think it is set. And then also you don't know how it's going to come out. You know, it's like you, you're set and then, you know, you might sing a note differently or you might oh, have guitar <laughs> and it'll become a different song. 
but having the structure of the song be what it is allows you then to to improvise. Was there ever a oh, of guitar or something else that ended up working out so well that you then put it into the piece? Ooh. No, I don't think I've been that lucky yet. <laughs> I mean, I I've never taken a guitar lesson in my life. So Wait. No, no. Rewind. Really? I like know how to play chords and I decided what I feel <laughs> the guitar is, but I've never taken a formal lesson before. So you taught yourself? Yes. Well, my dad has played guitar his whole life. Uh-huh. And he is great. He was the one who introduced me to the Beatles and like showed me what music is. He is also like an angry Italian man. So he like tried to teach me and he did teach me a couple of chords, but then he kept yelling at me because we, you know, we'd be having our lessons and I, you know, taking a long time and he'd be like, no, you're doing it wrong. Like, look at my hands. And then I would fight back with him because I'm also Italian. And so we just were getting into too many fights. So he taught me a couple of chords. And then from there, I had to teach myself the rest because we were we were just fighting too much. Wow. Yeah, and if you're Italian and you're fighting, you can't even make a chord because you have to be using your hands yes. to express your anger at yes. the other person. <laughs> <laughs> the guitars fell to the ground. <laughs> All the guitars fell to the ground and no one got any practice hours no, in. No. no one put any hours in. <laughs> I think we've talked about this before. What part of Italy is your family from? Okay, so I'm Italian on my dad's side and his... Dad is from Sicily. That's right, because we're both. Because on my dad's side, his his mom is Sicilian as well. Oh, I didn't. Know, I didn't. Yeah. Okay, we share that. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and then my dad's mother, her family's from Naples. When you said that you feel like a song is is done when it has its own life, and you get to put it out into the world and let people receive it and take it in a way that makes sense for them, have you ever had? an instance where a song is received in a different way than you intended when you created it? That hasn't happened yet, though I'm sure that it will. But what I have experienced is that a lot of my songs are very haunting, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, they're not all particularly upbeat, usually. Like, I, just what comes out. And I try not to judge what comes out. I'm definitely not a person who sits down to be like, oh, I'm going to write like a cheery tune right now. I just, whatever sounds come out, I think, are what it wants to be. But I've definitely had many people in my life be like, oh, you're so happy, though, and you're so, like, fun. Why are you writing some sad songs? Like, you should write something happy and upbeat. (laughs) And so... And I try not to take offense to that, and I, like, don't want to, but I'm just like, that's just what's coming out. (laughs) Leave me alone. You don't see everything about me. Come look at my bookshelf. a darkness. (laughs) (laughs) For the love of the dark one, I have to write for him. (laughs) (laughs) On that shifting of within your music, you just had your first music video made, which is gorgeous. Mm. Fun. So tell us about that process. I remember seeing on social media you talking about shifting it from when it was originally written being about another person to shifting it to being about your own experience with yourself. that's so cool that you bring that up. Yes, I wrote this song called Heart Song one summer, I think maybe in between junior and senior year in college, telling the story about this woman who's waiting for this man to like do the thing and like be there for her. And he is 
not doing the horrible things that like would make you not want w- that would make you want to end a relationship with someone but he's also not doing all the right things i wrote that song about that idea and then as time went on and i kept playing the song and playing it live sometimes and like sitting with it i realized that now when i play it i really don't identify with that story anymore and now when i talk about I don't know, for me, it just, the story completely changed and it turned from unrequited love with a man into my love for art and how like the, and that, that struggle is just the biggest one in my life right now. And like, you know, getting close, but not close enough. And it's just like a never ending wave. And I had this amazing dude named Brendan Day reach out to me and he's an up-and-coming filmmaker and editor and he said that he'd love to collaborate and I I chose to work on that song because I just was getting excited about it and when we were talking about what we were possibly going to do you know hearing the sound he was like oh maybe like a beach and and Hmm. nature and I loved all that but I was like there needs to be another woman in the video um, and she needs to be doing some her art um, because I don't want the song to be about girl and a guy or whatever. Like I want it to be about women and their relationship to art because that's just what's most present for me. That's interesting. So in in this instance, you didn't in between junior year Kara and making the video for this am i correct in assuming the song itself from the lyrics and the melody didn't really change too much it was just your intention behind it yeah and that gave it this whole other life i think so that's fascinating yeah that's really that's really interesting that's why i think that when you do edit it down to what it wants to be then like you can improvise it and it can be anything because like yours will go by and you will be different Mm-hmm. You get really specific so that then it can become universal. Right. And then you can interpret it in a litany of different ways. Mm, that, snapping. <laughs> that reminds me that reminds me of the conversation that we had recently with Anya, who I think it's fair to say is a is a shaman. Yeah. Is a shaman and also a like probably one of the preeminent Chekhov like Chekhovian scholars, I think, working right now. I think, oh, yeah. yeah, I think she's directed her, at the Moscow Art Theater. Yeah, oh I think <laughs> she said by her own admission, she is well aware that there are a limited number of people walking this planet who have the same knowledge of Chekhov that she does, yeah, which, she I, think a, is, she which I think is fair. And know. she talked about how she's been living with these plays and these characters for years, but she will come back and visit them at different stages in her life. And the work takes on an entirely different meaning in a brand new context. I'm sure. Because then you, like, at that point, you've had all these other characters living in you. Like, they don't go away. Yeah. And so then when you come back to a role or you come to a new one, you kind of have all these souls. And that's in, in also in an earlier episode with uh, Elizabeth, who was Peter in Romeo and Juliet and uh, Isabella in The Changeling talking kind of about that thing then with a role with with Peter um, and how she didn't want to encourage people to laugh at illiteracy because she found that mm. hurtful. And so it led to kind of making it about this Upper East Side family that their invitation, the reason Peter couldn't read it was it's this 
crazy immaculate contraption that no one can open because it's so excessive. And so it actually became like rather than laughing at illiteracy, it was laughing at the privilege of the Capulet family. And A, it's just so much more interesting, but it, but again, I don't think that could happen if the specificity of the humor wasn't there to begin with. Um, and for any of you who are interested in seeing that music video that we're talking about, uh, there is a link to it in the show notes. Yes. Okay. Well, before we start wrapping this up, I, I have to ask you about Antigone, which you and I collaborated on together at the Gilbert Theater in North Carolina, where you wrote all of the amazing music that was for the chorus. Because people in Fayetteville are still asking for, I was like, why were we such idiots and not go record these songs? Yeah. Like when I was back doing a new play of mine in January, and uh, a bunch of people who were, two actors from that show were in this show, but then a bunch of people who were in it or came and saw it. Um, came and talked afterwards. And the thing that everyone was talking about was, was your music trying to recreate that Greek chorus thing that you and I talked so much about. And like, how do we, how do we let this really be like its own thing, but also kind of characters. And it just lifted the emotional resonance of that story in a way that, because I've never really been a big fan of Greek theater. Like when you go, I feel like when I've gone and seen the plays, I've just like wanted to fall asleep. Yeah. Can, can, can be like that. <laughs> um, so what in writing that show differently than from like writing stuff for rude grooms, how was that different? Definitely harder because writing with Shakespeare's words is easy. Like it's, it's almost a song already. Like you just have to add some notes to it. But some of those speeches were pretty wordy. So it was a challenge to find the right melody that would fit, you know, all of the text, because of course nothing could be changed. But I think that was also the fun challenge of it because it was the first thing we worked on together. And I knew that the tracks would be used for something, you know, not only just to teach the folks in the cast the melodies, but like that the tracks could be used for something else. Like we used one for a promo video. And so I was really just able to like sit at the computer and bang it out just like you know, I'd come up with a melody and if it didn't fit all of the lyrics, I, you know, would twist it around. It was effortful in that way, not not in a bad way, but like you kind of had to just keep chiseling at it until it made sense. First of all, shout out to all of the people who have continued to support by buying the merchandise. Shout. Yes. Shout out to Deb Radloff. Shout. Who was just on the show and has purchased her shirt. Shout out to Marissa Levine, who recently purchased a shirt. She says, uh, just received my new favorite t-shirt in the mail. Hooray for this Wooden O podcast and their awesome swag. Shout out to New York Shakespeare, who retweeted our most recent episode. Shout out New York Shakespeare. Shout. Thank you, New York Shakespeare, for retweeting the Lone Star Shakespeare episode with the most excellent Jenny Stewart. You just saw her in Texas recently, right? She's quarantined in New York right now. Is she really? Don't tell anyone except they're all finding out from the podcast. No, they're not because we're going to edit this out. It's fine. I'm leaving it in. And then also, shout out to the good folks over at Podknife who recently featured and highlighted our podcast in their podcast curating website. Shout. On their Twitter account. I agree with all of the above. I'm going to add some more shouts. Oh, yes. One includes Melinda Johnson, who emailed me saying, I'm not going to tweet or Insta, but I wanted to tell you I am loving it. I adore all of your guests. I do not know any of them, but I love them all. You and all caps, the Daniel Kemper are amazing. I want shout to know him. So shout. Shout Melinda out. Johnson, shout. 
I am very easy to know. I don't hide from people, despite the fact that I'm an introvert. Well, though you should hide from people because of asthma and corona. Yeah, but I can still engage with folks in the digital realm. You can do a digital elbow bump. Yeah. I mean, it's the internet. We can high-five on the internet. Like, we can high-five digitally. That seems really dangerous to me. I'm not going to do that. A particular shout-out to those of our friends whose artistic work life has been affected by the theater closings. It's a really rough time, so I want to encourage everybody to reach out to members of, the, of your community. Reach out to your weirdos. Let folks know in your community what kind of assistance you might require. It's a strange time right now and one of the things that is going to make it a little easier is if we lean on each other metaphorically speaking to get through yeah just make sure you wash your hands for before yeah. and after but then lean right so many of, of of people in our sphere are even just from the shutdown to april 13th are hurt economically in a way that it can could, could take months if not a couple of years to to come back yeah and so if you have the means to pay a friend's rent for a month Mm -hmm. or just to hire someone to go buy groceries for you because you don't want to get out there yeah you can help in real ways i also want to shout out i don't know if you've been seeing this a lot on social media but one of the things that i've been seeing that has been really inspiring is there's been a uh, there's been sort of a movement circulating uh, asking people who had tickets to Broadway shows yeah, yeah. in this window in lieu of asking for refunds allowing those ticket purchases to serve as essentially donations yeah. also take baths also take baths take long walks by yourself take care of yourself mm-hmm. the world is still beautiful there are still ways to not only make this crisis healthy for you, but good for your soul. Take the time. Yep. What you got to recommend this week, Daniel? This week! This week I am actually recommending End Times Fun by Mark Marin. Amazing. <laughs> of course you're doing that. Of course I am. Mark Marin. crawl into a hole right now. I'll see you in a couple weeks, Daniel. Mark Marin has a new hour stand-up special on Netflix called End Times Fun. I, uh, I watched it last week, uh, right before I got the notification that my school is closing until further notice and uh, in the middle of trying to handle all of that. I sat down and watched this uh, this stand-up special that was maybe a little too on the nose, but I thought it was hilarious. It's the first one that I've watched in a while where I physically laughed out loud, like involuntarily so. And I also find Mark Marin to just be incredibly smart and poignant in general. If you've got a dark sense of humor, like I do, and that's sort of where you live, End Times Fun by Mark Marin now available on Netflix. Awesome. I wish I knew what darkness looked like because then maybe I could partake. Well, you're such I, a, as someone who not, does not understand darkness. You're such a think. warm and cheerful person all the time. Yeah. All, the, the whole time I've known you, I'm like, that Montgomery Sutton is nothing if not a perpetual optimist. You know, I was going to recommend, and I still will do this, but this is an action recommendation for the week, Changing Planes by Ursula Le Guin. Frankly, just read anything by Ursula Le Guin if you like Vonnegut, if you like Pratchett, if you like Gaiman. Ursula Le Guin is an utterly genius sci-fi and fantasy writer. However, what I'm actually going to recommend this week is calling that person you think about texting and don't. Yep. Just 
pick up the phone, see if they're okay, see what's been going on. I've had some great personal reconnections in the past 48 hours just by asking a question. And uh, as things get crazy, pick up the phone, check on them, tell them you care. In a call back to our previous episode with Anya, let them hear your voice. Yeah. If you call somebody and they don't pick up... Leave a voicemail. Yeah, leave a voicemail. Let folks hear your voice. Kara, do you have anything coming up that you want to plug? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a new musical called Sabina, and that's going to be at Portland Stage Company this April and May. It's a beautiful, beautiful story about a patient-turned-colleague of uh, Carl Jung and Freud, and she's just fierce, and <laughs> she's truly like a force of nature that was written out of history. So I'm super excited to tell that story. And I think it's going to be a really exciting new piece. Is that Portland, Oregon or Portland, Maine? Or? Portland, Maine. Yeah. Great. So if you're on the East Coast, you have literally no excuse. It's just a drive. We're going to be there. Yeah. I hear it's gorgeous up 100%. there 100%. That concludes this week's episode of This Wooden O. Kara Arena, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Uh, before we leave... Please tell all the people where on the internet machine they can find you. You can find me on SoundCloud, just Kara Arena, K-A-R-A-A-R-E-N-A, uh, Instagram, or my website, KaraArena.com. And thank you both so much for having me Literally today. our pleasure. I had a blast. So great. Oh, yeah. And this was the yeah, most delightful you thing. truly yeah. fill me with light. Oh. Thank you guys. Thank Leave you. that in. That was lovely. Yeah. Um, my name is Daniel Kemper. And I'm Monty. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Daniel Kemper. And I am on Twitter at Montgomery Sutton. I am on Instagram at Mc oh. Are you on did they let you have the N? No, I just spoke wrong. I'm not even drinking. I'm on a I'm on a drive five <laughs> and I vengeance my own vengeance social media handles please whenever you're listening to this future monty put oh vengeance is back to back to back oh yeah (laughs) i feel like that just describes me yeah yeah so where can they actually find you i guess you can actually find me on twitter at montgomery sutto and then on instagram at montgomery sutton because oh vengeance my life There's another one. Uh, Tune in next week when we will continue with our Rude Grooms series where we'll sit down and talk with our master of movement, Bridget Bowes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a review or give us a rating or subscribe or tell a friend or tell three friends. There are three people here right now. Your three people could join us. Wouldn't that be lovely? That'd be lovely. Be delightful. Bye, guys. Bye. See you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at rudegrooms.com or follow us on social media at rudegrooms and at this wooden o.